Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, bringing you another fantastic episode of Monday Madness on, oops, Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. It is finally June, and it also finally feels like summer, well, on the days that aren't rainy, that is. We just came off that long three-day weekend, so I hope everyone had a fun, relaxing time, but this episode of Monday Madness is being released on Tuesday, meaning we are already behind, so let's waste no more time and get into it. First, WTI prices. Seems like people got antsy waiting to get through the holiday and dump their money into futures as oil prices hit 68.68 early around 8 a.m. this morning. The prices have fallen since then, but it seems as if it will be stabilizing around the mid-$67 range, but you'll just have to wait and see what it does for the rest of the week. With all of the big headlines surrounding mergers, court rulings, and activist investors, many media companies have been pushing the narrative that oil is dead and the future's renewables. I'm sure we all know how Rare Petro feels about that bearish sentiment, but consider the fact that the 66 to near $69 price range is higher than anything we've seen since about Q4 of 2018. In those times, prices peaked at about $75 per barrel, so I am excited to see if we can not only get through $75, but make it the new price floor as it continues to blow past. If that happens, who knows? Just speculation, but holds potential to boost prices back to what they were back in 2014. But again, lots of speculation and me being an optimist over everything else, but still something you'll want to watch out for. So, prices fared well, but what about the rig count? I'm pleased to report after last Friday, we've got another rig count that is positive. 2021 is not disappointed with drilling activity so far, as we saw two more rigs last week, meaning we are up 106 rigs since the start of this year alone, and 156 rigs year to date. It looks like we are seeing most of this activity in Texas as the Permian puts up two rigs and the Eagleford bumps up their total by one. All other major basins saw no change, excluding the DJ Niobrara area, which lost one, and the Marcellus, which lost two. Overall, Texas is up one and Oklahoma is up two. As for type, horizontal saw an increase of three to 415, vertical remains at 15, and directional loses one, dropping to 27. Of the wells being drilled, nearly 80% will be oil wells, and the other 20 fall into that natural gas category. Overall, we saw the Permian grow, typical, and not a whole lot else change. Another week of positive numbers, so I will not be complaining at all. So far, we've seen great pricing and a good rig count. Can we go three for three on good news related to our statistics? The API and EIA say, you sure can. The most recent inventory reports show that the API overestimated their drawdown as they saw a 439,000 barrel inventory decrease and the EIA underestimated their prediction after reporting a 1.66 million barrel drawdown. A great week for statistics, it seems. Both agencies predicted about a million barrels in drawdown, and I would say if you averaged out their numbers, it would be about right. Fortunately, it seems that we are slowly chipping away at the huge inventory builds from March, but bringing down the total nonetheless. Still, last week we saw a build of about this magnitude, so everything balances out in the end. In terms of our refined products, gasoline continues to play with our emotions as it takes another small dip, bringing itself right up against the lower boundary of its five-year range. This could be a result of the gasoline panic buying from the past couple of weeks, but who can really tell? 
All I'm saying is that the video I saw yesterday of a man filling a tarp lining his truck bed with gasoline does not bode well for the rest of us for more reasons than I can even begin to count. Distillates also took a bit of an inventory dip, but that is something to be expected around this time of year, and it is at totals that are consistent with the past. Propane went roughly sideways, bringing it close to its lower boundary of the past five years' trading history. Overall, nothing out of the ordinary, but gasoline has the potential to become even more expensive in the near future, so keep your tanks full and an eye on those prices. I think that brings us to the end of our statistics, and it really wasn't that bad. Hell, I'd even argue that it was good. Sure, the numbers are modest, but they moved in a direction we wanted to see, so I'm looking forward to a great week ahead. As for the news, I'm sure many of you are already aware, but several companies had to seriously reevaluate their activities and goals for the upcoming years. Not too far back, Royal Dutch Shell pledged to cut its carbon emissions to net zero by 2050. Last week, a court in the Netherlands issued a landmark ruling claiming that their efforts were not good enough. The courts want to see a 45% reduction from 2019 levels by 2030, or about nine years from now. Basically, Shell was told, good job, but do it faster. Chevron, on the other hand, had a shareholder meeting, and that revealed about 61% of voting shareholders want to reduce Scope 3 emissions even more. In case you don't know, Scope 1 emissions are direct emissions from owned and controlled assets. Scope 2 covers indirect emissions from generation of purchased electricity, steam, heating, or cooling of any kind, kind of like an OPEX emissions cost, and Scope 3 includes all other emissions occurring in the company's value chain. This means that refining Chevron's crude into polyester synthetic fabrics and eventually a t-shirt before transporting it by truck to a retail outlet adds to Chevron's emissions portfolio as they are the head of that asset's value change. It is no surprise that in 2019, Scope emissions composed 91% of the company's emissions from total products sold. So, how can Chevron reduce their emissions and please their shareholders? There really are only two options, reduction in production or divestment. Otherwise, most any use of oil and gas, except as a chemical feedstock, will add to their total Scope 3 emissions. Even though Shell and Chevron got it bad, they weren't the star of last week's ESG revolution. That title goes to ExxonMobil. Many months ago, or Monday, December 7th of 2020 to be exact, I covered a story in Monday Madness in which there was a proxy fight between the company and a newborn activist investment firm, Engine Number 1. If you want the details of the conception of Engine Number 1 and their demands, check out the December 7th, 2020 episode of Monday Madness on rarepetro.com or through whatever client you're listening through. Fast forward from then to present, and the efforts of Engine Number 1 has placed another two candidates on the company's board of directors in an effort to restructure the bleeding company and face them towards a future of low emissions and profits. These stories all happened last week, and you can find many other better written accounts and even stories celebrating this turning point that will usher in the end of big oil. Now, I'm, I'm not here to talk about that, nor do I believe in it. I want to highlight one simple fact. Our energy needs will continue to grow. If it's not us, well, then it's the rest of the world. But the results of these rulings and restructurings will remove valuable energy-producing assets from the markets. Demand going up with simultaneous supply decrease results in a more expensive pricing point. Energy is likely going to get more expensive. You may be thinking, oh, well, I'm okay with that. I get to vote with my dollar, and I can certainly handle an energy bill increase. That's good for you, and also good for the planet, 
but not everyone can, especially those in countries that don't produce oil and gas and are run off of imported natural gas, diesel, coal, gasoline, whatever. Absolving the masses from energy poverty has resulted in decreased famine, decreased environmentally related deaths, and longer lifespans. All I'd like to highlight with this little speech is that energy costs and energy accessibility are indirectly related, and many people may be hurt because of that fact. Food for thought, but I am curious to hear what you have to say about the topic, so send your thoughts and opinions to podcast at rarepetro.com, and I would love to feature your responses next week. Lastly, I'd like to take a minute to visit an organization we've not talked about in far too long, OPEC. The news is still hot off the press, so hopefully you have yet to read about it. OPEC has been doing a pretty good job at maintaining production output. This is one of the reason prices have been able to rebound nicely, because OPEC is choosing how much oil to keep from the market. Still, the collaborative OPEC Plus decided to boost output in July, which, you know, was the plan since April, as they expected to ease 2.1 million barrels per day of production capacity back online. This isn't anything super concerning. Like I'd mentioned, this has been the plan for a couple of months now, but I think the outcome everyone was worried about was OPEC Plus deciding that, hey, prices are doing well enough, and we can actually return to a planned production a month early. Oil is up 30% on the year, and sitting at two-year highs after all. Many commodities research groups at this point have highlighted a much more concerning aspect. Just how much oil is Iran bringing to markets despite trade restrictions and sanctions, and how will that change when those are lifted? Iran is now in discussions with six world powers to enter back into the old 2015 nuclear deal. They have simple demands. They just want to be allowed to trade freely, especially oil, if they do rejoin the deal. Given that a large deal of the nation's economy is a result of oil and gas activity, it is likely that this deal could come to fruition and add even more oil to the global trading arena. Jeffrey Curie, a researcher at Goldman Sachs, says, It's too early to give specific numbers around Iran, so I think the best you can hope for in terms of how they're going to deal with Iran is the indication that they are willing to offset any increases in Iran's production. That could be the positive upside surprise coming out of this meeting. Even though OPEC Plus reserves the right to not offset a flood of Iranian production, OPEC Secretary Mohammed Barkindo said yesterday that he did not believe higher Iranian supply would be a cause for concern. At the end of the day, there's no way around the fact that oil and gas is necessary and everyone is chomping at the bit to get back to normal production levels. Sure, it could pose a shock for some pricing benchmarks, but with the decreasing production resulting from companies looking to target their Scope 3 emissions, it just might be offset. That raises another question. If all of the American and European supermajors decide to curb production, someone else surely benefits, no? Unfortunately, we can't answer that question today, as we are out of time. So be sure to subscribe and follow, as that question could be answered as soon as later this week. Rare Petro is always generating insightful and provoking content, because we are huge fans of learning new things and looking at the bigger picture. Be sure to head to www.rarepetro.com to see our useful links page where we collect a lot of our data and news, the services we offer as a company, and more than 18 months of content covering more than you could ever imagine. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody.